Now what Libby just read to us was from Isaiah. If you'll recall, Isaiah is a contemporary of Micah. They're both writing at the same time to the same group of people. We've, we've seen throughout Micah already that there's been a, uh, the, the prophetic, uh, vision here is really one of coming judgment for God's people because of their sin. We've talked all about that kind of sin. We'll talk about it a little bit more today, so I won't go into it yet. But because of their sin, God has said, you're, the consequences are coming. Judgment is coming. And the judgment that He pronounced upon them was that they would be overrun sacked and exiled by the dominant superpowers of the day, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire. Uh, the Assyrians would conquer the north of, of the, the, the kingdom of Israel. The Babylonians would conquer the southern kingdom of Judah. And that, there, that Jerusalem would be laid waste, that the land would be laid waste, the temple would be laid waste. I mean, th- this was a horrific pronouncement of what was going to happen. The judgment of God against their sin. Isaiah here, what we just read, what we just heard, was Isaiah talking about then God's promise that though everything was going to be laid waste, it would be rebuilt. You saw the mention of Cyrus there. That was a, that was a prophetic prediction. Only God could do. Seeing into the future, saying that, that Cyrus, who would be the, the Assyrian king, would then say you can go back to your land after a 70-year period of time. You could go back. You can rebuild. And that's, that's the promise that God is giving them. There's a judgment coming. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be brutal. It's going to be justified. But it won't last forever. There's hope. I, I will not leave or forsake my people. You will come back. You will rebuild. I will be with you. My covenant promise is with you are not broken. This morning, we're going to go back to Micah chapter 4 and see how Micah is saying similar things. So Micah's chapter 1-3, through we hear the judgment. Chapter 4, we get this look forward to the hope. We started that a little bit uh, two Sundays ago. We're going to continue in that today. I want to put a, a verse though on the screen and read this to you. And I want, to, I want you to ask yourself honestly, how does it land on you? How does it land on you? Ready? It's from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son or daughter whom He receives. How does that land on you? The truth of that verse is not in any way in dispute. This is God's infallible Word. I'm not asking you to evaluate the truth of the truthfulness of the verse. What I'm asking you to do is really to evaluate its personal impact. When you read that, when you hear that, when you're experiencing things then like discipline, when you're experiencing things that feel like chastisement, first of all, do you wonder, is God present in those moments? And if you're able to believe that He is present in those moments, do you think, I feel loved right now. I feel received by Him in those moments. 
You see what I'm trying to get us to think about? I mean, just, just real experience, real talk for a moment, right? You know that's true. If you're a parent of kids, you know that when you're dealing with your kids, that there's truth here, discipline, it's, it's me loving them. Hopefully, if your kid, you know, or you, all of us have at least at one time been kids, you, you kind of grow into realizing that there's truth to that statement. But the reality is in those moments, it, it's hard to feel that love, right? It's, it's hard to feel being received. It just can feel like chastisement. So I want us to consider that because, again, we've gone from Micah's chapter 1 to 3 where there's this judgment. God is rebuking his people, and he's doing that to lead them to a place of repentance. He's leading them to a place then of, of repentance and faith. And then he goes to chapter 4 in Micah and says, from that place of repentance, there is hope. There's this day coming when when, when all is going to be set right. Again, I've not le- left or forsaken my people. I, I, I'm committed to this covenant promise that I've made with my people. There is hope. But the question is, how do we traverse that, that road between repentance and faith and that ultimate realization of the hope of, of God making all things new, all things right, restoring everything? There's this... There's this road that we're all still on. Most of us in this room, we we call that road the Christian life, right? And the thing about that road is it's, it's usually a pretty long road. There's no shortcuts in that road. And we know this, that along that road, we still experience lots of moments of pain. That road is filled with a lot of potholes. And many of those potholes look like that. The chastisement and discipline of God. So if you're experiencing that this morning, if you're experiencing the pain of sanctification, you feel like you're you're hitting some potholes, then my prayer this morning is that this sermon will help you endure it with hope. Endure it with hope. Hearing and believing that God is both present and has a purpose in that pain. So let me pray. I want to ask the Lord to speak to us through me. I feel very loose in my sermon prep this week in terms of just trying to take this big concept and try and distill it into a a discernible message, so I need some prayer. So pray with me, please. Lord, we we need to hear from You. We need to hear from You this morning. Father, we're grateful for this this look of hope. We we know that, that Christ is making all things right. And yet we also know that we're experiencing pain. We experience discipline and chastisement there are consequences still yet that we're feeling so lord i pray this morning that you'd encourage us with what is your purpose in all of that where is your presence in all of that build up your church this morning strengthen us lord with this with this foundation of of hope that that even though we're not there yet that You're getting us there. 
and that You're working even now to bring about that restoration. Lord, meet us in our, in our pain this morning. Meet us in our pain. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I did title the message this morning, God's Presence and Purpose in Our Pain. Let's look at Micah chapter 4. Uh, we, where we left off last time uh, was at the end of verse 5. So let's begin in verse 6. And let me start by giving us this big picture promise that will be an encouragement to all of us. It's the big picture promise that Micah gives us. Look at Micah chapter 4, verse 6. He says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who've been driven away and those whom I've afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. So here's the encouraging promise here that, that continues on from what he said in the first five verses of chapter 4 what we looked at last time and continues here. It's that God will rescue us from our pain. He will rescue us from our pain. Now before we talk about that rescue from pain, I want us to remind ourselves what it, what's the substance and source of the pain that the people in Micah are feeling here? What's Micah talking about? So if we go back to chapters 1 through 3, we remember that there were two basic categories of people being addressed. There were the oppressors and there, there, there were the oppressed. Remember that? God was pronouncing judgment on those who were oppressing others by their greed, by their selfishness, by their lack of love and compassion, right? And he was also addressing those who had been negatively affected by that greed. He's saying there are those who are oppressors and those who have been oppressed. And, and what we're gathering here is that both groups of people either are or will be suffering pain. Pain is universal, right? And it comes in various forms and for various reasons. And I think Micah has both people in mind here, both, both, both kinds of pain in mind here when he talks about those who are both lame and those who are cast out. Do you see those there in the verses? To be lame is to experience an internal kind of pain that's caused by the brokenness that's inside of us. Right? So I, I think that speaks of the the kind of, of, of pain that one feels when the consequences of their sin have fallen upon them. When, when you feel consequence, that this is the, this is the judgment of God. That kind of pain, it makes us lame, right? It, it hurts us and wounds us internally. But then he talks about those who have been cast out. I think that's maybe the other group of people. This, this kind of pain that's caused by external consequences, like when we're mistreated by others. Like when we're victims of unjust or uncontrollable circumstances, when the consequences maybe of other people's sins land on us. We can be lame. We can be cast out. So let's begin by addressing the pain of the lame. The coming pain of the oppressors has been a big focus of the judgments pronounced in chapters 1-3 through so far. And that pain, again, is going to be felt in the impending consequences for their sin. Judgment has been pronounced upon them, which is perhaps best summed up by Micah chapter 2, verse 3. Look back over there. You probably have to turn a page back. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster. 
from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. So Micah is looking forward here. The Word of the Lord is looking forward here. And he's saying, look, your sin, Israel, your sin, Judah, has not yet fully been realized. The consequences have not yet fully been realized. It's coming. But what I imagine is that for those who had ears to hear, even just hearing that, that, that weight, that pain, was already beginning to fall on them like a heavy stone. For them, just that conviction of sin, if they were able to yet hear it, that conviction of sin would already be painful in, to endure. Like when, you, when you're convicted, you know you get that, that pit in your stomach, right? That sense of guilt and, and being ashamed and it just... Uh. And so I want us to think about that. Can we put ourselves in the shoes of those who are hearing this for the first time? Perhaps your own awareness of sin is paining you today. I wonder if it was hard for you to get out of bed this morning and just get to church. We all, we all can feel that sometimes, I think, right? Just getting to church feels like really difficult because I'm sensing that weight of, of sin that I know is in my life and I and I'm I'm feeling that conviction and and the temptation for me is to say I don't even want to look God in the eye right now. I, the, I'm ashamed to look at him. I'm ashamed to be in his presence or I'm ashamed to be in the presence of his people because that that conviction is just weighing on me. So I want to ask us to consider, do you feel like a lame man or a lame woman this morning? Or maybe we could look at the pain of those who have been cast out. This is the pain, again, of those who have been oppressed. That certainly is a current pain. Those who have been mistreated, those who have been abused. This kind of pain is graphically described in chapter 3. Verses 2 and 3, if you look there, it's, it's this, he's actually pronouncing judgment on the oppressors here, but he's telling them what they've done to those have been, who have been oppressed by them. And he says it's like their flesh is being torn off of their bodies. It's like they're being eaten up. Their skin being flayed from off of them. Their bones broken in pieces, chopped up like meat in a pot. And those are the kinds of pains that come through all kinds of experiences. They come through our setbacks and our failures. They come through our hurts, rejection, abandonment, separation, marginalization, racism, sexism, classism. I mean, we could throw a lot of things onto that pile. All of them forms of oppression. And if you've experienced any of those, and I think all of us to some degree have, you know that those are the kinds of pains that can cut deep wounds and leave deep scars. They're both devastating kinds of pain. The lame and the cast out. And some of us have been carrying those pains for many years. So what does the Lord 
have to say to those who are suffering pain this morning? Again, I want you to notice the promise of God in verse 7. And the lame I will make the remnant. Those who are cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. So here's the encouraging word for all of us who experience that kind of pain. Rescue is on the horizon. Rescue is on the horizon. You say, great, when? (laughs) When? And the answer there is found in the beginning of verse 6 where he says, in that day. You say, what day? Well, that harkens us back to verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of all of the mountains. It'll be lifted up above the hills. And we talked about that two weeks ago. That latter day that he's pointing forward to is the day that's realized in the coming of Jesus Christ. So you say, there's hope for rescue on the horizon from pain. That hope arrives to us in Christ. And we talked about the coming of Christ a couple weeks ago. We talked about that in, in two ways. There's the, there's the immediate coming of Christ, His first coming, and then there's the second coming. We, we might call that the eschatological view of His coming. And that's the one I think that He has in mind here, ultimately, as He's thinking about this ultimate final rescue from pain. There is a day coming, church, when Jesus will come back. And when Jesus comes back, He will set everything right. And we have hope that we're experiencing pain in this world. And we're experiencing the potholes of this world. Even the the potholes that come from, from, from the consequences of our sin or the discipline and the chastisement of God, there will be a day when that will be no longer needed. No longer necessary. Because Jesus will establish His kingdom and He will call us home. That's the promise here in verses 6 and 7. You're lame, you'll be the remnant. You'll be included. You're cast out, no longer cast out. You'll be established as a mighty nation. He will rule from Mount Zion forever and ever. I was talking with somebody earlier this week about uh, the fact that that in the, the church today, because we're 2000 removed years excuse me 2000 years removed from the death and resurrection of Christ that that we 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 sometimes sort of take for granted or 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 just kind of minimize this this truthful reality that we know he's coming back but since it's been 2000 years i think we get a little bit complacent and we kind of think that if he comes back i mean who knows when that'll be maybe it'll be another 2000 years and maybe we don't think about it enough we were talking about how the early church, they really believed that that was going to happen in their lifetime. So when you read the New Testament and you, and you hear even the apostles talking about the return of Christ, there's this sense in which they, they think it's coming tomorrow. And the result of that is that the church has this tremendous hope that I think we've lost sight of. There's this tremendous hope that allows them to endure persecution and trial and suffering because they're constantly being pointed back to this reality that there's resurrection for us. There's hope for us. God is going to make all this right. And it enabled them to to walk those difficult trials and tribulations, to walk that road in a way that that they were girded up always with the sense that this isn't the end. This isn't all that there's going to be. 
And I wonder if we've lost that. So my, my encouragement to you this morning is don't lose that. Don't lose that. Jesus is coming back. It's been 2,000 years, but that promise hasn't been minimized in any way. He's coming. And we're always meant to live in the light of that hope. He's going to rescue us from the pain. It's a certainty. So that's this, that's the first point. I, I just want to just lay that foundation because that's what, that's what Micah is laying here first. It's, it's going to get better. No doubt about it. But I want you to, to, to then look back and, and notice that there's something that I, I've glossed over here so far. Maybe it struck you as puzzling. What are you to do with the end of verse 6 in which God says this, I will gather those whom I have afflicted. If we're feeling lame or cast off this morning, or if you're going to feel that way, and you will in the future, how do you resolve this tension between God's rescuing us from pain and this clear indication that, that, that God is acting in that affliction, even bringing it about? Well, that leads us to consider our second point. Not just that God will rescue us from pain, but through it. God will rescue us through pain. Look back down at the text. Look at verse 9. Why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. So again, he's reminding them, yes, this judgment's still coming. There's hope, but the judgment's still coming. The consequences are still there. You're going to be exiled. You're going to go to Babylon. It's going to be difficult. But then he says this at the end of the verse. He says, but there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Isn't that interesting? God, if you're going to rescue us, I got an idea. How about rescue us before that happens? Right? How about, how about save me from the consequences? That would be good. God says, no. No, I'm going to rescue you in it. Through it. There's a couple of key words. There's three actually in verses 9-10 to that I, I want you to take note of. They all start with the letter L, which is convenient for me. The word lame, that's going back to verse 6. The word labor, and the word Lord. Lame, labor, and Lord. I think these three words will help us understand how it is that He rescues us, not just from pain, but through it. The word lame is interesting. Because the word used here for lame is not the, the same word that's, that's often used for that word in Scripture. It's, it's used in one place in particular though. And it's back in Genesis telling the story of Jacob. So if you were to go back and to read it, it's kind of a, a long story. And I'll be honest with you, it's kind of a strange story. 
the story of Jacob. But it starts in Genesis chapter 25 and goes through roughly about chapter 36. But, but you get this picture of, of, of Jacob, who is Isaac's son. So he's Abraham's grandson, right? And the story unfolds like this. We, we, we find out that, that he, he's got a twin brother, Esau, that his father, Isaac, loved Esau more than he loved Jacob. So you, you, you have this, this guy who's, who's growing up for whatever reason in a, in a home where he knows that his brother's more loved and accepted than he is. That's a difficult position to be in. Maybe some of you have experienced that. Right? Your, your brother or your sister, they're, you know, maybe they've, they've, they've been more athletic, maybe they've been more academically inclined, maybe for whatever reason, you just have that sense that mom or dad seem to favor them in a way that they don't favor me. That's Jacob's story. And Jacob doesn't have a, uh, a very righteous uh, life all the time. He's, he's actually kind of a sneaky guy. His name actually means he cheats. <laughs> And what he does is, is, is his twin brother Esau was born first, so he was the one who should have gotten the birthright, but Jacob basically steals his father's birthright from his brother, which makes his brother hate him. So dad doesn't love him as much. His brother hates him. And he goes wandering off. The interesting thing about the story is that in that wandering and in that pain and in that suffering and in that pity, God meets him. God actually meets him. He comes in the form of a man and we're told that, that he wrestles with Jacob. And in that wrestling with Jacob, he blesses him. He changes his name. You know what his name became? Israel. And he says to Jacob, Despite all of Jacob's failings, yes, that promise, that covenant promise that I gave to your grandfather Abraham and again to your father Isaac, I will fulfill through you. He blesses him. He changes his name to Israel. He becomes the father of all of the different tribes. And from that line, of course, ultimately the Savior, Jesus. But he does something along the way. While he's wrestling with him, we're told that he touches his hip socket in such a way that it cripples him. And so for the rest of his life, he's going to have this limp when he walks. Now that limp, that touch, wasn't meant to be a a chastisement of him. It was meant to be a healing touch. Such that Jacob, now Israel, would always remember for the rest of his life that he was blessed by God Every step he took. Every step. Like, reminded. God, God wounded me. But that's how he blessed me. Makes me think about Peter. In John chapter 13, you remember that, that great statement, Jesus is like, or excuse me, Peter says to Jesus, you know, we're, we're, we'll go anywhere with you. We'll die for you. And Jesus says to Peter, actually, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And of course, that happens. 
And after the resurrection, Jesus sits down with Peter and He says to him, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, Lord, You know I love You. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes. Feed my sheep. Third time, do you love me? Yes, Lord, He gets frustrated, right? You, you know I love You. He says, feed my sheep. What was he doing? He was reminding Peter, look, you denied me three times. But in three moments here, I'm restoring you. And I think that set the foundation for the rest of Peter's ministry. Because Peter becomes a very different person after that, right? He's wounded. He's feeling the, the, the weight of the sin. I think those three times, he's frustrated because it's a reminder to him of those three times that he denied his Lord. But in being restored in those three do you love me's then feed my sheep, he has a, a very different perspective on ministry. Such that I, if you look at the, the rest of Peter's ministry, it's no longer a, a ministry that's, that's really sort of founded on, on zeal, but on mercy. Right? He went from, we'll do anything for you, Lord, to... Now I can feed your sheep with this knowledge. You are merciful. First Peter chapter 1. Just listen, I'm going to read this to you. Because this is what Peter says. Verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that, that by the way, is, is, all, is all prefaced on the, the hope of, of resurrection that he gives at the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1. In other words, I think what, Peter, what Peter's new perspective now is, because we have this hope, we can endure trials. And we're going to endure trials. We're going to have pain. We're going to be wounded. But it's through that woundedness, it's through those trials that that hope is stoked. That our lives are refined. That, that we're made, we're transformed from, from just blindly zealous people to people who understand the mercy and the love of God. I think about the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 when he talks about this thorn that was given to him in the flesh. This pain that he has. We think it was probably something physical. And he says it's, it's, it's a messenger of Satan to harass me. Why? To keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me, but He said to me, no, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He has this sense that, that God has rescued me, not from my pain, but through it. Which is why I think the writer of Hebrews can say the Lord disciplines the ones He loves and chastises every son or daughter whom He receives. There's a purpose that God has in those afflictions. 
He uses them to rescue us through that experience and transform us in a way that we wouldn't be transformed without. Jake Muscat said something earlier this morning that I had to write down. Here's a quote from C.S. Lewis. It says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. But He shouts in our pain. It's His megaphone to revive a deaf world. Do you believe that? Have you seen that be true in your own life? Have you seen that there's, there's times in life where, where it's because of the trial, it's because of the pain, it's because of, of the affliction of God that, that you were able to finally experience in a very new way a full appreciation for His goodness? for your dependence upon Him, for your need for Him, to keep us from being conceited? What would we do? If, if our lives were, were, were pain-free, what would we do? We'd have such a temptation to just rely on ourselves, wouldn't we? Isn't that what was going on in Israel and Judah at this time? The economy was good, right? There was the sense of security. There was all these, all these things around them that, that just that didn't, they, they were going well. There was no pain. And what were they doing? It was turning them into awful, greedy, oppressive people. And so God in His mercy says, I'm going to not just judge this, but I'm going to use that to humble you and change you. There's a hope that's realized and appreciated through the pain. Which brings us to the second word, Labor. I think it's an apt uh, illustration here. Right? He talks about this, this picture of, of labor. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. What, is that, what does that picture bring to mind? Well, it, 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 it brings to mind for at least you know, half of us the possibility of immense pain. Right? But most of you Ladies who will get pregnant and go through that experience, most of you will do that willingly. Why? Because you know what's on the other side of it. And if you've ever been in a delivery room and seen that crazy roller coaster from pain to glory when that baby finally arrives and, and it, it just all of a sudden the pain is, is completely overwhelmed by the joy of the new life that it's given birth to, then you have some understanding of the picture that he's bringing here. Again, that's how God works. There's labor pains to be endured, but there's life and joy on the other side. And we see that most clearly in the third L, Lord, in verse 10 and verse 8. It points us again forward to Jesus, where we see that it's the cross it's the cross itself, but that's the place where Jesus rescues us through pain. For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. Our rescue didn't just come because God said, "Just hey, let's just wipe the slate clean, don't worry about it. It came through Jesus taking our pain, taking the consequence upon Himself and suffering on our behalf. That's how God brought about our rescue. Pain has a purpose. 
We're just being rescued from it, but through it. And in that pain that we experience, we are identified with Christ and His sufferings. In that pain that we experience, we are being refined to become more like Him. He rescues us through pain, so don't despise it. God has a purpose in it. Again, verse 10, For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country and shall go to Babylon, but there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So if we're girded up with this knowledge, church, that God is, He's got this, this plan to rescue us from it, but in the meantime, this road that we're on, He's rescuing us through it. It gives us then, lastly, a, a new perspective on pain. I think I just went through. A new perspective on pain. Look at verses 11 to 12. Now, many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gaze upon Zion. So again, he's talking about the Assyrians and the Babylonians, right? They're assembled against you. Let Jerusalem be defiled. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan that He has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. So arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron. I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. I love the the words of verse 12 here because there's this new perspective for us when we're staring at the strongholds of guilt and shame and oppression. When, When you come up against those things, this is what you ought to be able to say in that moment. They don't know the thoughts of the Lord. They don't understand His plan. God has a plan in my pain. What is that plan? The prophet Jeremiah speaks of that plan, again, to the same group of people. And he says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. That's the plan that Mike is talking about here. They don't know that plan. So would you turn a couple more pages uh, over to the right to Micah chapter 7? I want you to see this. So you think about what a new perspective on pain should bring about in your life. What do you say to the pain of guilt and shame when it seeks to overtake you and destroy your hope? What do you say to it with with your new perspective that God is going to rescue you from it and through it? Look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 7. You say, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. For when I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Yes, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against Him until He pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon His vindication. This morning, if you're feeling again the weight of sin, if you're feeling the consequence of that, if it's, it's such that you, you can't look God in the eye, you feel just so beat down by it, be reminded of the hope that God is working in that. 
The fact that you're even feeling that consequence is a way in which God is refining you. God is bringing you back to a repentance. But it does not mean that His promise of redemption for you is broken. It's not. He will deliver you from sin. So when that weight is staring you in the face, you say to that, do not gloat over me. I will rise. Right? Sin, guilt, you have no victory over me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord. Yes, I'm suffering consequences, but this will not be my undoing. He's my vindication. You have no final word over me. What do you say to the pain of oppressors who trample you and hold you down and seek to overtake you and destroy your hope? You look at verse 10 and you say this, Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. You, you, you look oppression in the face and you say, again, yours is not the victory. Where is my God? You want to know? He's on the throne and He will vindicate. He went to the cross and He has conquered. I will not be cast out. I will not be left out. I am His. And you have no power over me. Isn't that what Micah chapter 4, if you flip back over there, says there at the end of verse 12 and verse 13 where we're, where we'll end this morning? They do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They don't understand His plan. That He's gathered them. Who? The oppressors. The, 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 the judgment of Assyria and Babylon. He's gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. And He says to His people then, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. Again, I'll make your horns iron. I'll make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in, p- in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord. You will have victory over them. Those of us who are in Christ can have a whole new perspective on pain. He's sovereign over it. And because He's sovereign over it, I can be confident that He will rescue me. He died on the cross to set me free from the power of sin and death. Both my sin and the sin of others. Therefore, I will be vindicated because Jesus has been vindicated and His vindication belongs to me. And I can endure pain because I know that God is present in it. He works through pain to bring about a greater peace and a greater hope like the pain of child labor brings about new life and joy. Again, His grace is sufficient for me. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, with insults, with hardship, with persecution, and with calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God is present and has a purpose in our pain. I want to end by having you look at Psalm 94. I think I had that out of order. That's why I went through there. Psalm 94. 
Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. If your life is difficult, if you're feeling the weight of pain, whether it's a consequence of your own sin or a trial or tribulation, maybe even the consequence of others, know this, the Lord is working in it and He's disciplining you. That's not punitive. It's like discipling you. He's disciplining you. Sometimes He's chastising you. It's because He loves you. Because He has a purpose to refine you. To prepare you. To make you more like His Son who suffered for you. That your sin would have no power. And that you would be girded up in hope. He will rescue. And He's doing it now. And so when we know that and believe that, we can say with the hymn writer Horatio Spafford, which we're about to sing in just a couple minutes, when peace like a river attendeth my way, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, God, You have taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. So Father, we pray that You'd help us We're all traversing this long road, this, this road of sanctification, and, and sometimes we want to we quit. We want to give up because we, we wonder, Lord, are You present in all of this? There's a lot of voices around us telling us that, that suffering is a, is a problem for You. Suffering ought to make us question whether or not You're good or whether or not You're in control. That if we were really walking with the Lord, if, if we were really doing what You wanted us to do, that, that we'd have nothing but prosperity in our lives. And let You say something very different to us in Your Word. Lord, You refine us. You chastise us. You discipline us for our good. That's the pathway to rescue. And it points us to Jesus. It points us to His cross. So Lord, would You just gird us up in that? Lord, I'm praying for my my brothers and sisters this week who are about to go out and, and, and step into the places that You have for them tomorrow and live their lives this week and experience all kinds of potential pitfalls. Would You remind them that there are people of hope? That even when they sin this week, that there's still a people of hope. That You're not absent in those moments but You work all things together for the good of those who love You in Christ Jesus. And therefore, there's no condemnation in Christ and there's every expectation of vindication in Him. Make us a people who believe that and who endure. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Lord, that we can say with confidence, no matter what, it is well with our souls. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.